The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. Stocks took a dive today on news of lower retail sales, higher interest rates, and growing recession fears. The Dow, NASDAQ, and S&P 500 all suffered major losses. It's been an especially rough ride this week for Tesla shareholders as the company's CEO, Elon Musk, cashed out more than $3.5 billion in shares. Musk this week also lost his title as the richest person in the world. The Federal Reserve on Wednesday announced yet another interest rate hike and forecast further hikes through the end of next year in what it cast as a long and likely painful campaign to rein in inflation. Today, the FOMC raised our policy interest rate by a half percentage point. We continue to anticipate that ongoing increases will be appropriate in order to attain a stance of monetary policy that is sufficiently restrictive to return inflation to 2% over time. We will stay the course until the job is done. Fossil fuel firms can cross HSBC off their list of lenders for new projects. The banking giant said Wednesday that it would no longer fund new oil and gas fields. It will also expect more information from energy clients about their plans to cut carbon emissions. Japan has unveiled plans for its biggest military build-up since World War II. The government says it will double defence spending, bringing it up to the NATO standard of 2% of GDP. Japan's move away from a self-defence-only stance comes as it seeks to counter regional threats. It plans to acquire long-range missiles capable of striking China. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. The Fed raised the Fed funds rate by 50 basis points this week, a move that was widely expected in what has turned out to be one of the most aggressive rate cycles in nearly four decades. The rate hikes are starting to impact the economy. We're seeing weakening LEIs, lower retail sales, falling real estate prices, and slowing manufacturing. Signs point to an approaching recession as layoffs continue to rise and the economy weakens. A saying about the Fed policy actions is that they'll keep raising interest rates until they break something, either in the economy, the markets, or both. And right now, it's looking like both with a weakening economy and faltering financial markets. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Paplava, and welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. Coming up at the top of the hour is Tom McClellan. Tom sees the market correction continuing in the short term with the January rally. However, Tom warns the bond market is sending a strong signal of an approaching recession that the Fed, as usual, is ignoring to the detriment of the economy. Tom predicts next year will be much better, but volatile as Fed policy creates so much uncertainty in the economy and the financial markets. Following Tom is Jim Gundry. He's CEO of Sisu Energy. It's one of the nation's largest trucking companies. Jim says there remains a major shortage of truck drivers in the country of over 150,000 drivers. That's going to keep the supply chain difficulties with us for years to come as well as keeping the cost of transporting goods high, which is inflationary. His truck drivers are making over half a million dollars a year. Finally, Chris Paplava and Chris Sheridan will be here with another edition of Smart Macro to discuss the hawkishness coming out of the ECB 
which is bad news for the bond markets and for stocks. But first, let's find out the stories moving the markets with Ryan Poplava. According to such technicians as John Murphy and Art Hill, the call is that the year-end rally may be over as of this week with the short-term weakness we've seen in stocks. Short-term tops can be seen in the charts such as the Dow Jones Industrial Average near significant resistance between 34,000 and 34,500. The news that sent the market reeling this week was a combination of a hawkish tone from the Fed, weak economic announcements on Thursday, and follow-through on Friday's quadruple witching options expiration day. Well, let's walk through the key events this week, starting off with Tuesday's consumer price index print, uh, which was a happy relief to investors versus the producer price index we got last week. The CPI rose 0.1%, which was less than expected. Even in the food category, things slowed with an increase of only half a percent versus 0.6% in October. Core CPI without food and energy was up 0.2% the lowest monthly gain this year. Prices were down for used vehicles, medical care, transportation, and it was flat for new vehicle prices. Annual inflation was up 7.1%, down from the last month's 7.8% growth, while core CPI was up 6%, down from 6.3% growth in the prior month. The annual headline inflation hit its lowest since December of last year. Stocks responded favorably to this news with the Dow Jones Industrials up 2.1%, the Nasdaq up 3.8%, and the S&P jumping up uh, to its 200-day moving average, or actually above it, up 2.8%. However, the enthusiasm for the lower inflation numbers were cut short by the Fed's decision Wednesday to raise rates 50 basis points that included a new dot plot from the Fed officials' projection that showed 17 of 19 anticipate a Fed funds rate forecast above 5%, with two officials forecasting above 5.5%. Investors were hoping that the Fed would acknowledge the drop in inflation figures since the summer, uh, but that didn't happen. Previous projections at the September meeting showed a terminal rate of 4.6%, so here Come December, these projections have been raised for the federal funds rate for 2023. Powell said he thinks the Fed is close to the level of sufficient restriction, but that the focus of the Fed has not changed and will stay at restrictive terminal rate levels or higher for longer for some time as the Fed needs more evidence that inflation is on a sustained downward path. The Treasury market was volatile on the day uh, with some immediate selling, but then rallied at the end. The two-year note hit 4.33% and settled at 4.26%. The 10-year Treasury yield hit 3.55% before settling at 3.5%. The underlying fear here is that there is a lag effect of prior rate hikes, which are likely to influence a weak economy and drop the earnings potential of companies below current expectations in 2023. My brother and I see earnings projections and rate cut projections that are too favorable next year to our projections. As such, we started selling some of our risk positions last week, and we are back below our benchmark levels in equities for our clients, taking a defensive tilt in the portfolios. We also added to our existing portfolio of short-term treasuries with a one-year treasury purchase. Now, Thursday, for the first time in a while, uh, bad was not good. Uh, Before, when we would get economic projections or results that were worse than expected, there was the hope that the Fed would ease off on its acceleration pedal uh, for Fed funds rates. Uh, But economic conditions are deteriorating, and that doesn't mean the Fed is going to ease up on its current course. 
to reach a terminal rate in the 5% range. China announced retail sales, industrial production, and fixed asset investment data that was all weaker than expected. Our November retail sales dropped 0.6%. The regional manufacturing data for December uh, was down with the Philadelphia Fed Index at negative 13.8 and the Empire State Manufacturing Index at negative 11.2. November industrial production was down a negative 0.2%. Also on Thursday, the ECB, Bank of England, Swiss National Bank all raised rates 50 basis points to follow in the Fed's footsteps. The S&P 500 registered a loss of 2.5% on the day. Now, Friday's IHS market manufacturing data for December came in below 50, another indication of contraction at 46.2. And the services PMI was at 44.4. It's one of the first readings I've seen uh, as negative in services. If you recall, the ISM number was above 50 uh, for November. And so the IHS market manufacturing data and the servicing PMI both indicated contraction conditions. So, you know, this week was mainly about the Fed, uh, that it was going to keep rates higher despite a clear easing of inflation since June and despite weakening economic conditions. Given there is a lag effect of the Fed raising rates, it is uh, an increased likelihood uh, of the Fed driving a hard economic landing versus a soft And current multiples of earnings estimates don't reflect that sentiment. This week's guest technician is Tom McClellan, coming up next. Clearly, the official payroll data, the official unemployment data is still very strong. Initial jobless claims are still very low. But I think there are a couple of reasons to be skeptical. You typically see in the fullness of time as the cycle matures, that data is subsequently revised away. Uh, and you often seen in the very later stages of an expansion with the benefit of hindsight that the labor market wasn't quite as strong as it looked in real time once all these all these revisions kick in. You typically see downside revisions to the to the payroll data when the sort of response rate to the survey is low. And the response rate to the November survey, I think, was one of the lowest ever, if not the lowest ever. So that would argue uh, very strongly that there's a risk of revisions to the current strong labor market data. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. Are you tired of earning a minimal interest rate on your investments? Are you looking for a higher rate of return on your money? Financial Sense Wealth Management has put together a portfolio of high dividend paying blue chips, high quality interest paying bonds and preferred stocks. Our income account portfolio is specifically designed to help meet the needs of retirees, pension funds, and foundations looking to increase income and reduce taxes. To learn more, contact us at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, if investors were looking for a change at heart at the Fed, they did not get it on Wednesday. The Fed raised interest rates 50 basis points, taking the Fed funds rate to four and a half and implying there's more to come. Well, let's find out where this goes from here. Joining us on the program from McClellan Oscillator is Tom McClellan. Tom, uh, let's begin with some charts, and we're going to make this available for our listeners. You've got the Fed funds target. And what is this chart telling us? Because we know that right now the Fed funds rate is above the two-year note. 
So what does that say? Uh, they're basically equal. The two of them are uh, the two-year Treasury note yield and the Fed funds target rate. They're basically the same right about now. And that's useful to know because for over a decade now, I've been pointing out how the two-year knows better than all the PhDs at the Federal Reserve what the FOMC ought to do. And the two-year note yield tends to go places before the Fed funds rate catches up. And so I have argued for a long time that uh, the FOMC ought to just outsource its job to the two-year note yield and uh, skip all that travel cost having meetings in Washington, D.C., fire fire a few of their PhDs and uh, save the taxpayers some money. Uh, So far, that suggestion hasn't gotten very much traction, but uh, it remains on the table. Well, you know, it always seems, and I don't know what it is, you've got a lot of smart people, as you mentioned, you know, 200 PhDs. They're either loose for too long, and that happened with Greenspan, happened with Bernanke, happened with Yellen, happened with Powell. And then they, for example, last year, inflation was transitory. And then they swing the pendulum in the opposite direction. And, you know, this is probably one of the fastest tightening cycles that I've seen, at least in my career. It is fast. It needed to be fast because inflation really got a boost by Congress throwing a bunch of money at COVID and the Fed throwing a bunch of of QE at COVID. And that that had a predictable effect on the money supply, which had a predictable effect on inflation. The rise in inflation that we have seen arrived on schedule, according to the long-term cycle work that I do. It's just the magnitude of it was so far above anything normal that if you think that higher interest rates will fight inflation, then you really needed to have higher rates. I'm not actually convinced that uh, interest rates have all that much effect on inflation. We, we know that the Fed raises rates when they when they see inflation, and we know that inflation comes down after a while, uh, But and so they think it works. But this is the same logic that had doctors uh, using administering a, a bleeding to patients 200 years ago because they would do it, and sometimes the patient would survive, and they would say, oh, see, it worked. Uh, but we, we know a little bit better now. Uh, but economics and especially monetary policy is one of those difficult areas of science where it, it's really tough to do a placebo-controlled trial. You can have opinions and hypotheses, but you can't really test them uh, out of sample. You cannot say, oh, it didn't work. So a lot of the hypotheses that economists go around spouting about what works and what and how things work never get tested. And so they never get proven wrong and uh, they never let go of bad ones. That's the situation we face now, and there's, I'm not proposing that we can do anything about it because you don't want to have an alpha-beta test on something regarding the economy. It's just not possible to do that. Coming back to your question about the chart, though, the fact that the Fed funds rate has caught up to the two-year yield is informative. And what it should inform the Fed is that you guys are done. However, they think they know better and they say they're not done and they're going to keep on going and that's going to screw things up and it's going to tighten the screws down on the economy way more than it needs to be because the two years saying uh, you are, you have hit the target. It's kind of like a, a, a piston engine that has a governor on it. If the load on the engine suddenly picks up, then, then the governor has to say, okay, let's open the throttle. You add more. If the, the load decreases, then you need less throttle. And that's the job of the governor. Well, the best indicator of what the interest rate should be is a two-year denote yield. The Fed still thinks that they know better than the bond market because they have expensive educations. And so that must be everything that they learn must be valid and true. And they must be the smartest people in the room and they don't need to listen to the bond market. And so we are going to continue seeing them make the same mistakes that they've made for for decades. 
You know what really surprises me, Tom, is we know that interest rates to some degree act with a lag, some say six to 12 months. And I use the uh, the medical analogy, picture uh, an individual has cancer, the doctor comes in, they apply chemotherapy, and then they go, let's see uh, and check this back in a month and see its effect. They keep applying chemo every single day. They don't stand back and wait a bit and say, and especially as hard and as fast. I mean, it's, I don't think people realize we were at 0% interest rates. Now we're at four and a quarter to four and a half. I mean, that's one of the fastest uh, rate hikes I've seen in my entire career. Well, yeah, and the Fed was at zero when the two-year note yield was screaming up through 1%. So they were slow getting off the mark and they, they finally caught on and realized, oh, shoot, we're we're behind the times. Let's try to catch up. And they've been admirably working hard to catch up, but they've been catching something that's been running away at a really fast rate. And so they the Fed needed to catch up fast. And they have now. The message that the Fed officials should take is, yes, we have caught up now. Let us stop and pause and wait for another message from the bond market before we decide what we're going to do next. But that's not what they're saying. They're saying their intent on continuing to suppress the economy even further, uh, raise rates even further, and they'll screw something up and and exacerbate the recession that's going to happen in 2023. Uh, But that's just what they do. And they listen to people who are inside their circle, and they don't get outside voices that could tell them something that would be useful to know. Um, They go to the same cocktail parties with the same people they went to college with, and it's very insular, and they don't learn things, and they don't think they need to. It's always amazing. You know, uh, when you manage money, you make mistakes sometimes, but you know what you do is you look back and you learn from your mistakes. These guys, I don't think, have ever learned from their mistakes. So it's, it's, it's a little bit of hubris on their part that they know more than the markets. But I want to go to your second chart, which is total treasuries and mortgage-backed securities held by the Fed. What is this chart telling you? So that's a long way of saying this is the Fed's balance sheet, which the Fed has announced that they are going to shrink, and they are shrinking at a rate of $90 billion per month. When COVID hit, the the Fed decided that the banking system needed all sorts of liquidity, so they were throwing a trillion dollars a month worth of quantitative easing, or QE, at the banking system, and that had the predictable effect of boosting stock market stock prices in a big way. Now they're trying to claw that back, not as fast as they put it in, which is good. Uh, they're trying to claw it back at a, a, a more rapid rate than has ever been done before. But we know from the first quantitative tightening, or QT, which they did back in 2008 in the middle of the worst financial crisis, and they made it worse, that we know it had a bearish effect then. They did quantitative tightening again in 2018 and 19, which uh, got balanced out somewhat by a little bit lower income tax rates, thanks to President Trump that were imposed. So you had a bearish force from the from the Fed balanced out by a bullish force from taxation, and it kind of put the market into a violent sideways draw uh, until they started doing QE again, and then market started screaming upward again. We're we're in the quantitative tightening realm now, and for the foreseeable future, they have announced no end in sight to that. So we are allowed to expect that the combination of high tax rates with taxes more than 20% of GDP right now, uh, which is a a recession-inducing level of taxation, and they're shrinking the size of the the banking reserves by quantitative tightening at $90 billion a month. Those are not good factors for the stock market. Somebody said, how'd you go bankrupt? And the person said, gradually and then suddenly. 
And it reminds me of what the Fed does. I can remember, I think it was 2018, December that year, they were raising rates and they predicted the following year they were going to raise four more times. January, they stopped within the first couple of weeks and then they start cutting rates rapidly. And I think that's what they're going to end up doing again. They'll wake up and they'll find out they got a financial crisis or the economy. Something's gone wrong and they've blown up something. And then they switch gears and go in the opposite direction. But that's true. And that's important because right now the market's counting on quantitative tightening and higher rates as far as the eye can see. If the Fed changes that course in a material way, then there's going to be a reaction. And so that's what you need to watch out for. And as you look at this cycle, as you look at where we are now, we've had a hard pullback here in the last couple of days. Where do you see the markets go from here? Well, we had a little pullback on December 14th, Wednesday, the day of the FOMC announcement. Uh, and it was a, a little pullback because the uh, Wall Street got what it thought it wanted, which was a half a point rate increase. People were disappointed that the assertiveness of the comments in the post-meeting announcement about continuing rate hikes and continuing quantitative tightening. So that was a little bit of a disappointment. What Wall Street was not counting on was the Bank of England piggybacking that on Thursday, the 15th of December with their own half point rate hike and their own announcement of quantitative tightening. Uh, that was not something that Wall Street was really ready for. And so that's why we had a 2% down day on uh, December 15th. And I think that we're probably getting exhausted uh, for the moment. I have a bottom that's due from some very technical work that I do. Uh, it's due December 19th to the 20th. That's Monday and Tuesday of next week. We also are going to have quarterly expiration on Friday with a, a bunch of zero data expire options that are going to play havoc with people's portfolios on Friday. So look for some more fireworks on Friday the 16th. Um, and then I have one more bottom that's due January 3rd to the 6th. And then the market can have a chance to go up in January. Uh, I'm looking for a very strong rally in January. I can't tell you right now whether the December 19th to the 20th bottom or the January 3rd to the 6th bottom is going to be the higher or lower one. Uh, these signals that I that generate those, those bottoms don't tell us that information. That tells us about where there's going to be a ripple in the liquidity stream, but it doesn't tell us what level the market's going to be at. But during the month of January, I'm expecting a very strong rally in the stock market. And that's going to get everybody all excited about the January barometer, because as goes January, so goes the year, or, or so a lot of people believe. I think that this big, strong rally I'm expecting in January is going to get everybody excited about that. They're all going to start counting their chickens on a great up year, which they should expect because it's the third year of a presidential term. But we, we are likely to see the top for the year in January. In terms of this bear market, do you see this continuing next year, or do you think we're getting closer to the end? Or do you expect more intermittent rallies as we've had throughout much of this year? I think um, more uh, chop, violently up and down, but more sideways than what we saw in 2022. 2022 was a, a down year with robust counter trend rallies. 2023, I'm expecting to be sideways with robust rallies and scary sell offs and repeat, uh, more like a, a, a saw blade uh, with with jagged teeth on either end. And it's going to be thoroughly frustrating for anybody who's a buy and hold investor and thoroughly wonderful for anybody who can trade the chop. And so you understand, need to understand what the game is this year. And it's going to be a, a buy and sell and buy and sell and 
And I repeat over and over again, is the only way to get any traction with the market environment just ahead of us. And the Fed contributes to that. They, they're trying to undo all the liquidity stimulation that they did for COVID, uh, and they should. But that's what we have to grapple with is that that creates certain conditions for the market that are not good for buy and hold. 2020 and 2021 were great when the Fed was doing QE. They're not doing QE now, and it's not going to be great for buy and hold. Tom, we're also getting into the third year of a presidential cycle, which typically are very strong years for the market. You see that basically going off kilter next year because of where we are with what the Fed's doing? That is, uh, if you add up the balance of forces equation, that is a positive factor. That is a bullish factor in the market's favor. That's lined up against a bunch of other bearish factors, though. And so as, as you weigh those out on the scales of justice, uh, I think that the third year is not going to be able to overcome all the bearish factors that uh, that are ganged up against it. I, I don't think it's going to be as bad of a year in 23 as we saw in 22, uh, but it's not going to be a great buy and hold year. It may it may squeak out a gain to keep the third year track record uh, good, but it'll only be moment by moment. And there'll be a lot of up and down on the way from here to the end of the year. I want to go to an asset class, commodities, and specifically, I want to talk about precious metals. I think last time we talked, you don't see them taking off for some time yet. Let's talk about that. They were a great trade a few months ago, about two months ago, because nobody thought that it was a great trade. We saw really horrendous sentiment indications uh, from the commitment of traders data on gold and silver. We saw um, a lot of people fleeing out of the ETFs, the, the bullion ETFs, GLD and IAU. Uh, even when gold started to turn up in October, uh, people were still fleeing out of those uh, ETFs, which says that their bearish sentiment toward gold was much more hardened in their hearts. Uh, normally, um, the asset levels in those ETFs go up and down with prices. But when prices turn up and the asset levels continue going down, that means that there's more permanent bearishness and that is going to take much more of a rally to for in gold prices to soften that bearishness. We, we've seen a, a pretty good rally. I still hold an upside objective to about 1865 for gold prices based on the chart structure, although we had a big hit to that today with it, with it dropping 30 points back down to below 1800 uh, on the Bank of England news uh, for higher interest rates. So that's a that's a stumbling block for, for gold. I, I still expect a little bit higher, but not hugely higher. Uh, as everybody might expect, high interest rates uh, and waning inflation are not so good for gold prices. And those things matter uh, in, in, in terms of other commodities. Uh, the shrinking of the money supply is going to... Um, soften some of the fervor, the speculative fervor toward other commodities, and the slowing down of the economy is going to, is going to threaten economic demand for, for most of the commodities, certain things like cobalt and nickel and lithium that are uh, in high demand for electric batteries are an uh, individual story not related to the commodities market as a whole. Tom, what about silver? I mean, uh, it's pulled back today as, as gold did, but it looks like it, it's been sort of breaking out. What's your take on silver there? Silver's had a nice, large, rounded bottom and has shot up more than gold has, which is normal. If you think of it in terms of, of, of stock investing, silver has a higher beta compared to gold. So um, if gold moves 
1%. Silver will normally move three, and that and that's just very normal. I like I like to describe it, it that gold is the belly button of the dog, and silver is the tail of the dog. So if you try to judge the position of the dog by watching the tail, uh, you're going to get a lot of a lot of information that's not necessarily good. Silver will wag itself uh, back and forth really hard and and much more volatile than than gold not for any good reason that's just the the, the nature of uh, how that market works and how the speculators who like to play in silver like to move it around really fast um so yeah it's having a little bit of a pullback because it got overbought but the longer term sentiment says that it shall, still should have a little bit further to go not a whole lot further i'm not looking for the great commodity super cycle to to lift those uh, because there's other headwinds against them and finally, let's talk about oil. Uh, it, you know, I think we peaked at 130, and it's been in a downtrend since then. Where do you see oil from here? Well, uh, one thing we know is that the Biden administration is saying that they're a buyer at 70 uh, to refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and and it could turn out to be a, a good trade to have sold oil out of the SPR at, at 120 and buy it back at 70, and the taxpayer might make a little bit of a profit if they get that done before oil prices head higher. The big tell for me in knowing what, what oil prices are going to do is to watch gold prices, and oil prices will tend to echo the movements of gold prices about 20 months later. So 20 months ago, gold was starting a big, powerful upward move. And so oil should be echoing that powerful up move into January. And I think that'll also be part of what lifts the stock market going into January. And it won't be beneficial for those who are worrying about inflation to see oil prices popping up into January. I don't expect much of a pop in oil prices beyond the end of January based on that gold leading indication. But it's going to be enough of a pop to get everybody excited about inflation continuing higher, and that'll push, uh, that'll put upward pressure on yields, downward pressure on bond prices, uh, and then it'll exhaust itself. The big funny thing that's been going on in the oil market is oil prices have trended down, but oil stocks and the XLE, for example, have been trending higher. So you have this big alligator jaw pattern on the chart where the two are doing different things. And a lot of people say, well, that's a great opportunity to short the oil stocks because they're higher than they ought to be based on where oil has gone. I think that's a right idea, but not the right time. I would wait till the end of January when oil is finishing its pop uh, that gold is calling for for oil to make uh, into the end of January. And that'll be a better time to catch the, the tailwinds of that over-exuberance in oil stocks and a downward reversal in oil prices due at the end of January. So, Tom, summing up, you expect uh, some more weakness going into, what, uh, December 19th, somewhere around there, and then a strong rally beginning of the year, but it's more short-term. It's going to be more chopped next year than anything else. Correct. Uh, I, I, I say that the December 19th to 20th bottom, that's the bottom to go down into. And the, the, the next bottom due January 3rd to the 6th, that's the bottom to go up out of. Which one's going to be the higher or lower one? I don't have good confidence in, but I'm planning to exit my short uh, early next week, December 19th to 20th, and, and hopefully get a little bit more downward movement to, to satisfy me on, on holding that short position. And then I look to get long uh, to ride the big January bounce in stock prices just after the first of the year. All right. Well, listen, Tom, if our listeners would like to follow the work that you do, and you put out a lot of uh, interesting reports, you've got daily reports, weekly summaries. Tell our listeners about your program. 
We do have a twice monthly newsletter, our original newsletter, the McClellan Market Report. Uh, we started in 1995. We also have a daily edition that comes out every day the market trades. You can find out about them at our website, mcoscillator.com. That's a contraction of the McClellan Oscillator that my parents developed back in, in 1969. Uh, if you're not ready to have a paid subscription, we also have a free weekly chart and focus series. You can sign up for free. There's no strings attached. We won't send you spam or, or sell our, our list to anybody. It's just a way to get more people acquainted with our work, mcoscillator.com. All right. Well, listen, Tom, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and look forward to talking to you next year. To you as well, Jim. I hope you have a great holiday. At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and hit where it says contact us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, we've all heard about the supply chain difficulties from ships stacked offshore California to the inability to get enough truckers to move the merchandise. Well, let's take a look what has changed over the last year. Joining me on the program is Jim Grundy. He's founder of Sisu Energy. Jim, I want to talk about, I think last time we had you on the show, you talked about there's a shortage of about 80,000 truck drivers in the industry. The Biden administration is thinking about alleviating that by lowering the age for truck drivers to age 18. I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's like with anything else, experience is irreplaceable. When you're putting an 18-year-old behind a diesel with uh, very limited experience navigating in some of the most major cities in the U.S. and North America, it's a recipe for disaster. And unlike a vehicle, 18-year-olds on the road now, those collisions typically don't result in death. When you're talking a 1,000-pound vessel going down the road, it's a literal missile. Various hazardous you know, materials or you know, other goods and services that can cause substantial damage to pedestrians that are in and around that vehicle at that time. So it's not a matter of, you know, it's not just experience. It's We're talking about putting the public safety in the hands of an 18-year-old that doesn't have it is not a wise choice. I know last time we talked during COVID, a lot of the truck driving schools were shut down where you could take somebody with no experience. They would go to a truck driving school and they would get that valid experience. So if you put them behind the rig, they knew what they were doing. What has happened since you know the lockdowns have lifted? Are the truck driving schools filling up? Are they up and operating so you can get new drivers into the system? It's really a binary issue right now. Number one, you don't have folks applying. Uh, the younger generation that's 21 to 25 now, there's not a lot of folks that are lined up to be truck drivers. And I think when you understand the economic potential of truck driving, especially like in our sector, our top guy this year would do $800,000. Our average driver does half a million a year. Oh my goodness. I can't think of too many people coming out of an MBA program that would be making a half a million or 800,000. 
Why do you think that is? Is it because it's sort of, you know, fossil fuels have been demonized? We talk about climate change. And so maybe they don't want to get into an industry they view as dirty. I think there's a little bit to that. Also, I think this generation is so socially connected. I think they just choose not to be on the road. A lot of these jobs, especially, you know, out of Southern California is you know, one of the biggest ports in the world, if not the biggest, you're talking about, trans, you know, taking product all the way to middle America. This is not attractive for a lot of people, the younger generation, but it's like with anything else, they haven't been exposed to the potential and why it's important and the financial benefit of partaking in these careers. They would rather go spend 40 to 60 hours sitting in an office, you know, making 50, 60,000 a year. And there's nothing wrong with that. But you take that same individual and put him behind a truck and we're talking about life-changing money. So I guess it just depends on your value system and what it is that you know you want. Do you want to be at home in your bed every night? Then trucking is probably not for you. But if financial reward benefit is paramount, then it's a career that everyone, I think, should consider in some capacity. And when we talk about that, we're not talking about just being truck drivers. We're talking about our average dispatch team for CSU Energy is 75000 a year. We have in every department, you know, we're 90% female. So it's not a male dominant industry that has perceptions out there of that. We're 90% female that run our company and every department head is a woman. We're 75% of all of our drivers are considered minority. It's a great vessel for folks to get back up, you know, from the pandemic and get their lives back and get their financial stability back. You made a comment about, you know, has diesel been weaponized or politicized has absolutely been weaponized and politicized. And I think that's really unfair in the users because I would argue that the U.S. government that we elect has a fiduciary duty to its constituents. And in this case, there's nothing remotely close to being cheaper than diesel and natural gas for energy usage. Even solar, wind, all those things, the infrastructure alone make those alternative energies very pricey where half Americans would not be able to afford those luxuries. That's what we're calling for now until the infrastructure, until our bandwidth on the grid can support you know, mass output of alternative energy. Now, there's a lot of talk. Elon Musk is supposedly coming out with uh, EV semis. Do you see that gradual transition? I mean, the government's trying to say that you know, wind and solar is going to basically power our economy. And we're seeing, you know, the wind doesn't blow a lot of times, the sun doesn't shine. My own state, we've got energy blackouts as we transition to wind and solar, which are less reliable. Do you see EVs coming into your industry and replacing diesel trucks? EVs have a place. I think it's for local transit in major cities, school buses, what they call milk runs or dedicated routes where it's consistent every day. Where it doesn't work is like in our industry, and we work in oil and gas. We're off down roads that are unpaved, uh, way out in the middle of nowhere, with no chance for you know any sort of alternative energy or refueling or repowering. It's just not an option, especially for over the road as well. When you consider how long it takes for the, these EV batteries to charge, a diesel truck, the transit, it's going to make the cost of goods go up tremendously. The equipment's more expensive. It's going to be more expensive. It's going to take longer. But at the end of the day, when we talk about what's powering America, wind and solar, no, what's powering America are going to be the ones that are going to pay for it. They're the ones that are having to 
foot the bill here. You know, the folks in Washington are making these policies are subsidized. Their payrolls are subsidized by taxpayers. So it's the end users that wind up paying for it all. And there's not a cheaper alternative, not even to that of uh, natural gas, or diesel or fossil fuels. It's just not in and, and, and look at how many products consume every day in our home that are backed by natural gas and fossil fuel industry. And it's tremendous. You're talking about getting rid of 90% of all goods and services out there. It's just not sustainable and it's not realistic. And it makes for a cute conversation around election time, but we're also hearing narratives from folks who've never created a single watt of energy or even understand the premise behind it. So it makes for a conversation, but it's not realistic. Elon Musk, Volta, that's a popular brand in Europe right now that has electric vehicles and they're putting them in the major cities and they're trying to, you know, buses and transit, they're switching over to Volta technology and it's working, but it's not for everybody. And the answer isn't either or. I think really the answer here that everyone needs to hear and understand is it's all the above. We're going to need wind, solar, you know, electricity, batteries, fossil fuels. Texas produces more energy than any state in the US and we have blackouts nonstop. Two years ago, we had a winter storm come through, knocked out the entire state, knocked us off the grid because everyone was desperate for heat. You think about wind, we have solar fields, we have huge output of fossil fuels and we can't keep with demand down here. And it's just one of those things where this war on fossil fuels is tone deaf and it's not realistic and it's more political agenda than it is anything that surrounds macroeconomics and just basic common sense. So you see EVs as having a role in this, but probably more local trans transportation. So maybe the big trucks bring the stuff to distribution centers and from the distribution centers to the stores, you might use an EV to get it to the local stores. Is that pretty much what you see? That's a strategy. Absolutely. I mean, you're talking about having, you know, potentially pods on the outer skirts of cities where instead of having big diesels coming through a city, I think it would make much more strategic sense to have smaller trucks that are EV that can offload and transload the goods and services from trailers and then get to, you know, just like you see the delivery of goods and services now to convenience stores. Typically, they're not 53-foot semis. They're 27-foot trucks. That would make more sense, and that would make the public safer, and that would keep big trucks out of the cities. That's a wonderful strategy, but there's no one on the fossil fuel side, which I live in, that's anti-solar, anti-wind, anti-alternative energies. We're all for it. A lot of our technology we use for fracturing is based on alternative energies. This war is being waged on one side, and it's not the other side. We all openly welcome wind, solar, and any other form out there because we have an understanding it's going to take as many modes as we can possibly utilize to support the energy demands of this economy and this global recovery. Jim, we hear a lot of stories about diesel shortage, especially on the East Coast. Is this something you guys are running into, and how serious is it? It's very serious. You know, if you look at what the true cost of oil and gas per barrel should be, I would argue it should be double what it is now. You're having a lot of global events happening that's having a watering down effect on the prices, but it's all temporary. The reality is refineries are backed up and can't produce enough product globally fast enough. When the refineries were mothballed with the pandemic, and I would argue none of the refineries are back up to running full capacity. And you have a global recovery that's outpacing our ability to produce energy and sustainable product. And you're seeing it, East Coast, West Texas, there's signs all over West Texas of stations that are out of fuel, 
of various grades. It's not just diesel, it's just, you know, basic consumer fuel. And then you have a railroad that has been up in arms for the last two months, three months, threatening strikes. And you put all this in, you know, a giant blender and, and it's not very pretty or productive for anybody. And once again, though, at the end of the day, it's the consumers that are going to wind up paying for all this. What about also something that hits your industry? And that was vaccine mandates. We saw that with the Canadian truckers kind of revolting against that. Has that impacted your industry? Do you require your drivers to get vaccinated? I mean, if you think about it, a driver is in a rig by himself. So there's probably not a lot of contact they come into. And if they do, it's probably outdoors. We have a general policy with the company in our employee handbook. If you're not feeling well, if you're ill, you need to focus on you and your health. That's always been part of the pandemic. That was our stance. You know, we don't want anybody working that, that's sick. At the same time, though, in Texas, there's laws surrounding the mandation of vaccines. It can't happen. You can't force someone to be vaccinated down here. The Governor Abbott addressed that early on. And I think, honestly, it was the right move. We do know the culture and climate around the country is a little different than here in Texas, but we've been very fortunate that we haven't had to shut down. And we've had very minimal interruptions with a positive COVID cases having impact on our staff, our fleet, anything in that nature. Uh, I think where it was probably more dangerous was in the office setting. Because at various times, we had various people get COVID. And what we did to fight back on that was, you know, we put people on staggered times working in the office versus home. We made everyone wear a mask. And there's only so much you can do because it felt like, and it still feels like we're fighting this ghost that no one can see. The majority of us have been vaccinated on our own will. And it's just like, it doesn't seem to have a deterrent to acquiring the virus. And we've been working, worked through the pandemic. And We've only seen things increase on our side as far as revenues and uptick and demand for our services. And that's going to be the case as long as we're working in the rears here on energy production. The U.S. is not producing enough barrels to sustain itself, and we've already tapped our reserves. So we're looking at an uphill climb here for the next two or three years. When you guys in your industry, outside of labor, one of the biggest costs, once again, is diesel fuel. Do you guys see this being resolved or do you see, as you look and try to forecast what your costs are going to be, do you see rising energy costs over the next year or two, uh, given the fact that we're sort of this war that we have against fossil fuels? Uh, you know, an oil company can drill in Venezuela, but we don't want them drilling here. And a lot of our oil production has come down. It's not where it used to be, even though the demand keeps rising. Now, the oil production, it's very relatable to the current administration stance. So a lot of these companies are from the U.S., like BP, right? British Petroleum, great company. They know what they're doing. They're highly involved in around-the-world activity, but they're not in the U.S. right now. And, and they were prior to this current administration. But when the pandemic hit, they vacated the U.S. And a lot of companies did that and haven't come back. Your traditional powerhouses aren't as powerful in the U.S. right now when it comes to oil and gas-related activity. And I think a large part of that is there's just a lot of uncertainty in the air as to what direction the U.S. is going to go when it comes to energy independence, or are we going to continue to be dependent on folks like Venezuela and Russia and OPEC, our Middle East partners? We're seeing what happens when you become dependent. Uh, you have less control over the pricing. And so right now, we're very dependent on OPEC and other providers around the world. 
and you're seeing what it's doing to the prices at the pump. And we're I've seen some narratives on TV where they talk about, you know, the falling price of oil and gas right now. I was like, wait a minute, hold on. I mean, and I'm neither Republican nor Democrat, but the fact remains when Trump left office, gasoline was about a dollar less than it is now. And right now is the lowest it's been under the Biden administration. You know, and we're all looking at the prices out of the corner of our eyes saying, you know, this really isn't reflective of the true cost of what the price per barrel should be. We think the price per barrel should be double what it is now based on our inability to produce and frack and extract the amount of oil that we need to gain price normalcy. Because right now it's all over the place. I mean, we just saw in the last month go from 479 down to 279, and now it's on the way back up. And it'll do this because there's a lot of instability and uncertainty on the markets. How do you plan as a business when you're pricing contracts for delivery? As you just mentioned, it was at 479, then it's down, then it's going back up again. How do you forecast that and plan that? You really don't. You have to have a good working relationship with your external partners, number one. And But when we look at the true cost of what we do and the impact of diesel prices on what we do, it's a fraction of the cost. This narrative is kind of overplayed a little bit. You think, well, how's that so? Well, let's just assume you're paying $4 a gallon for diesel and it drops to $3 a gallon. That 25% diesel right there does not constitute 25% diesel from the revenue because the truth is diesel is about 2 to 3% of the cost of a load on average not 25 to 35%. And it's incremental. There's not a whole lot of uh, movement with the fluctuation in diesel prices that people think there is. So you're really looking at the maintenance is big cost driver. And then really it's supply and demand. There's not enough truckers right now in the US. That number is upwards of probably 150,000 trucks since the pandemic. They're estimating now there's no one applying to be truck drivers and the wages rates continue to skyrocket, which is why you're hearing some, you know, our top earners doing well over half a million a year, which is more than managers on Wall Street make. You know, I don't think people realize it's great to be talking about, you know, saving the planet and environmental destruction and the things that they throw out there. But people don't realize even during the pandemic, you know. Your Amazon truck that was delivering your packages to your home, you know, that runs on gasoline or diesel. So, you know, we're so used to having anything we want. We can order it online. You expect to go into a store. But one of the things that we're seeing, I've even seen it here in grocery stores that you've got sections of the grocery store that have empty shelves. And so you guys are a critical part of that supply chain. If you were, Jim, to advise the administration to resolve this supply chain issue, especially in trucking, what would you advise them to do? I'm telling them they need to embrace all forms of energy right now. If they did that, they'd never lose an election again. The waging war against the oil and gas energy and all the people that surround that from gas stations to folks in logistics and, and demonizing diesel delivery or, or semi trucks in general, that's what it feels like. Like we're doing something harmful when we're all, everyone on this earth is in the same boat. We're all on the same planet. What happens in Iraq impacts, happens globally over here in the US, where we're all sharing the same air. So we talk about, you know, you'll hear the, the fracturing is unsafe and that didn't, there could be nothing further from the truth. US is 
probably the safest nation around the world that has so many restrictions on fracturing and water tables and what we can and can't do. It's very regulated. It's very safe. I've been in the industry for 15 years now, and you hear this stuff and you just shake your head like this is not accurate. I mean, it makes for political fodder. But if the Democrats would embrace energy and embrace oil and gas extraction in the U.S., they would probably never lose another election for the foreseeable future because they wage war against something that is a necessity and it's baffling. It's baffling to me as well. Well, Jim, you know, you mentioned your average guy is making about a half a million dollars a year. You know, you're talking about big Wall Street salaries there. If somebody wanted to find out more about getting into the truck industry, what would you advise them to do? Would you advise them to go to one of these truck driving schools? You know, and especially if you don't have any experience, because you put somebody behind a big diesel truck and put them on the road, you want somebody that knows what they're doing. That's a great question. I come from J.B. Hunt. I cut my teeth at J.B. Hunt. I would recommend anybody that is, you know, wants to go down the logistics path and to be a trucker. J.B. Hunt's a wonderful company. They're the largest publicly traded trucking company in the world. Swift, Schneider, they're great companies as well. They all have programs for new drivers. We unfortunately do not. And most of those provisions surrounding who can and can't drive are insurance companies. So we're limited by our insurance company to who we can and can't hire. It's not that we don't want to hire folks with no experience. It's the insurance companies won't insure them. And that's a whole nother problem in the trucking space right now. But there's a reason why trucking companies won't insure someone under 25 years old with a semi, because they've got years of analytics to that point that you know anyone under 25 is at high risk. It's the same reason why men get discounts on insurance rates at 25-year-old. They think at that point, your frontal lobe, you know, the cortex is developed enough and you're mature and you're not making irrational decisions. Fortunately, when you're in a, like I said, as a pedestrian vehicle, more times than not, you make a mistake, you're not killing someone. If you make the smallest mistake in a semi, more than more times than not, it results in death. And that's really what we're talking about. So, you know, there's a lot to consider and it's not something that, hey, we wave the banner of oil and gas. We're all about alternative energies and finding new strategies. But right now, for folks at home that are listening or that are interested, oil and gas is by far the cheapest form of energy we have at our disposal. And it renews itself about every 40 years on in the ground. So it's kind of unlimited quantities and unlimited amount of supply. A final question. I know in the airline industry, if you've got a severe winter storm, sometimes they'll ground flights because of visibility or storm conditions like thunderstorms, which you guys get a lot of in Texas. One of the worst flights I've ever had was in a thunderstorm over Texas. When it comes to weather, how does that impact you? So you got a driver that's got a load and maybe he's got to get it halfway across the country, but you got a severe winter storm. What does that do to your routing? Every driver has the right to pull over and what they call stop work. They can claim stop work, meaning that they're in an unsafe condition. And you will never hear a single trucking company or personnel complain about that. At the end of the day, as professionals, they know when to pull over when things appear unsafe. And a lot of times we'll ground drivers ourselves. If there's a major winter storm, a major event, like two years ago down here, we put all of our drivers at a truck stop and took them off the road because you know, I've been a part of those conversations with a fatality, whether it be from a driver or a pedestrian, and those aren't fun conversations to have. And we have a responsibility to the public and to uh, each other. And so there's no one out there trying to be 
times in, in extreme weather. These guys are know what they can and can't do. And I would like to think that, you know, at CSU Energy, we do a great job of identifying quality drivers to navigate these roads in all conditions, but also know when to pull over. Well, I just hope after hearing this conversation, there's a greater appreciation for what you do for all of us. I mean, anytime I want to get something from Amazon, it's here. Anytime I want to go to a store to get something, it's there, but it's there because of guys like you. So I want to thank you, Jim, for joining us on the program and all the best to you. And hopefully we'll get some sensible policies here that'll make your job easier. Yeah, it'd be great. I mean, we're all about this recovery and getting people what they need at the lowest price we can possibly uh, you know, get. But the reality is supply and demand is dictating majority of pricing measures right now. And so we're seeing 40% increase in prices this year. And unfortunately, there's nothing on the horizon that's going to dampen the pricing outlook of anything, much less interest rates. So there's just a lot of unknowns right now, but it's going to be bumping for the next two or three years at a minimum. All right. Well, listen, Jim, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us and keeping us informed. All the best, sir. Hey, I appreciate it. Thank you. If you're seeking financial advice and how to invest in today's markets, Financial Sense Wealth Management can help. From setting up or providing advice on 401k plans, managing corporate cash balances in a zero interest rate environment, to helping individuals, foundations, and businesses achieve their financial goals, give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today at 888-486-3939. Let us work together to help you get on the path to success. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. It's quite possible the Fed killed the year-end rally this week. Joining us on our special Smart Macro edition is Chris Paplava, our Chief Investment Officer here at Financial Sense Wealth Management. So, Chris, tell us, what is your take on what we saw take place with the markets this week? I think one of the, the big takeaways that I have was that central banks killed the bond rally that started to take place in October, where we had interest rates globally fall uh, pretty significantly and bonds rally from a deeply, deeply oversold condition. However, when we think of the markets, one of the things that we, you know, at least I like to do is understand what, you know, step back and look at the trends. Uh, are, do we, are we dealing with a bearish trend or bullish trend? And one of the easiest ways to do that is by looking at the slope of the 200-day moving average. So it's basically, um, you know, a one-year moving average for whatever market you're looking at. And it, it is really helpful to understand what is the primary trend. And when we do that with bonds, what we find is that when we look at, for example, the 30-year U.S. interest rate, we see that interest rates remain above their 200-day moving average. And also the 200-day moving average for the 30-year U.S. Treasury is upward sloping. Uh, another thing that trend followers use is the relationship between the 50-day and 200-day moving average. And currently, on the 30-year Treasury, the 50-day moving average is above the 200-day, which is uh, indicative of a bullish trend. So when we look at long-term U.S. interest rates, you would have to conclude that the primary trend is up for interest rates, despite the significant decline that we saw since October. 
And when we look not just in the U.S., but when we look abroad, we see very similar setups. For example, when we look at the U.K. market, their 10-year yield is above its 200-day moving average. The 200-day moving average is upward sloping, and its 50-day moving average is above the 200-day moving average. And when we look at uh, UK bond yields, it actually bottomed late in November. They've already started to move up uh, pretty significantly since then. And when we also look at European yields, we see the same thing. Uh, and interestingly, in uh, Europe, for example, uh, German Bund 10-year uh, yields had one of the s- smallest declines of global bond yields uh, since the October peak. And when we look at them currently, they remain well above the 200-day moving average. And not only that, uh, one of the few markets where uh, German 10-year yields are even above their 50-day moving average and not that far off from the October peak. So there is a lot of bullish trends looking at European bond yields where the 200-day is upward sloping, price is above the 200-day, price is above the 50-day, and the 50-day moving average is also above the 200-day. And we look at other parts of Europe, we see the same thing, whether it's looking at Italian, French, or Portuguese or, or Spanish yields, we see European bond yields are moving back up pretty aggressively. And part of that, Chris, is the ECB's decision to raise interest rates, but also the announcement that the European Central Bank, for the first time in more than a decade, will be shrinking its balance sheet starting next year. So that is a, a huge implications for European bond yields. For example, when the U.S. Fed started to taper, we started to see U.S. interest rates move higher and even further when the Fed began to shrink its balance sheet. So what we could be in store is for Europe to basically have its moment like the Fed, where it's basically nine months or more behind the Fed's moves. And if we, if we see European bond yields move significantly higher, generally interest rates uh, for sovereign bond yields tend to move in the same direction. And this could put upward pressure on U.S. interest rates. If in, U.S. interest rates do not follow European bond yields, given the interest rate differential shrinking, uh, that could po- uh, point to some re- weakness in the U.S. dollar. So either we see weakness in U.S. bond market or we see weakness in the currency if we see European bond yields move higher from here. Now, at the very beginning of the show, as Ryan said in the wrap-up, we had actually reduced our risk uh, and our equity exposure and have moved uh, to a much more defensive posture. How does what you're seeing here relate to your market outlook? Well, for us, you know, that it, it's always difficult when you have a similar outlook as a consensus. And the consensus right now, uh, which was discussed with your interview with Felix Ulof, is that the market or market participants think the market is going to roll over and have a bottom in the first quarter. And that weakness in the market, uh, which is stemming from a weakness in the economy um, under the weight of the uh, significant amount of interest rate hikes this year causes the Fed to finally pivot and start to discuss maybe rate cuts in the back half of the year. That then engenders a market bottom and the market begins to uh, trade higher. So that's the consensus. Now, again, usually the market tries to confound the most amount of market participants. So if the consensus is going to be wrong, there's really two scenarios in which that can happen. One the market does not roll over from here and remains resilient like the U.S. consumer. And it's probably because of the U.S. consumer where we essentially see 
the excess savings that were accumulated during the pandemic hold the U.S. consumers' consumption trends, which thereby support the economy. And so the stock market just meanders sideways. I think the upside is pretty limited at this point, but uh, it may not roll over right away. And that may come uh, later in the year versus earlier on, as a consensus believes. Another option where the consensus could be wrong is instead of a rollover, a mild rollover to a new low in uh, the first quarter of next year, is that we could have a much more of a significant decline in stock prices and risk assets, more so than what is currently being discounted by market participants. And then that causes the Fed to pivot, but at a lower level in risk assets. So those are the two potential scenarios. And given I feel the upside is limited because the economy is slowing, it's not accelerating, and the Fed is a headwind, not a tailwind, I do believe the upside in risk assets is quite low, but I think there's still plenty of room for the downside. Because of this, uh, we have been raising cash again for our clients. Uh, Again, just because I think the upside is somewhat limited, while there is some significant risk to the downside. We did put some money to work for for clients near the October low. The market was really oversold. Uh, We were about to get some uncertainty put behind us uh, from the elections and other areas. So we thought the market would rally. We definitely had the seasonals um, behind it to, to do so. But as the market's been rallying the last couple of weeks, we have been uh, moving aside and, and raising some cash and uh, very similar to what we did last year. So again, we have a number of different factors here lining up that you discussed. We have the Fed more hawkish than what the market expects. So there is this disconnect between market expectations, market consensus, and what the Fed is projecting in terms of where they think their terminal rate is going to end up over 5%. Uh, the stock market, the Wall Street consensus, we should say, is closer around 4.9%, so under 5 And the Fed is believing that inflation is going to head higher. They even downgraded their outlook for employment, believing that unemployment is going to pick up next year. So they're moving more hawkish in an environment where inflation is decelerating and the unemployment picture is expected to also deteriorate. And so it would sound like this week was really a catch-up, if we could call it that, from what the market had originally expected to now the fact that they're saying, okay, we need to align ourselves with what the Fed is doing and uh, not fight against the Fed on this. From what it sounds like, given what we're doing here at Financial Sense Wealth Management with clients in our portfolios, we believe that the overall macro backdrop, as Bloomberg's macro man told uh, FS Insider listeners this week, is still not very positive for the equity market outlook. You know, I I would agree, Chris. You know, Warren Buffett said that one of the few people he reads religiously is Howard Marks, who's been, uh, had a phenomenal, successful uh, career. And what Howard uh, remarked in his book recently was that over his career, looking back on it, he's made a big decision once every decade where you know, you go all cash and then eventually go all, all back in the market. Um, he sidestepped the housing bubble and he, he made some other astute uh, decisions like the, you know, moving out of stocks during the tech bubble. But outside of that once every 10 year type of portfolio move, he said, in general, you should be leaning a little bit more aggressive than your neutral stance and a little bit uh, defensive compared to a normal stance, depending on the outlook in the near term. Uh, but not you know all in, all in cash and making those really big portfolio changes. 
And that's very similar to what we do, where we do think the, the downside is still there, more so than the upside. So when we look at the macro backdrop, uh, as Kevin Cry has pointed out, we see a lot more on the bearish side than bullish. So for us, that then causes us to be a little bit below and, and more defensive than our benchmarks. And that is where we are and where we stand today. Uh, we were pretty much underweight uh, stocks almost all year. And we you know, would come closer to neutral and then back, um, you know, depending on how oversold the market was. But we are back to a very defensive posture because we do see the market um, having a lot more headwinds and tailwinds at this point. So basically, in some inflation picture is moderating. It's still at high levels, but it's moderating off of the peak that we saw earlier this year. The economy is still slowing. The leading economic indicators are still pointing down, not showing that we're near any point of a U-turn in the economy. And the Fed is also not showing any signs of a pivot, which what the consensus was really hoping for. Fed threw a bucket of cold water on that idea this week. So when we take all those things into conjunction and considering what we also see with central banks as well, like you said earlier, the European Central Bank engaging in quantitative tightening as the Fed is doing here, the liquidity picture is also not positive for risk assets. So it's for these reasons why we're still on the defensive side. That's correct, Chris. One of the things that I've been looking at all year, I was very much like the consensus in terms of how they view the Fed and its monetary policy. In that, when we think of the Fed and we think of its balance sheet, most of us only focus on the assets in terms of how much uh, how much the Fed owns in treasuries and mortgages, and whether it's reducing that or expanding that with QE. But what's also really important, and again, this came from uh, Cameron Kreis and his uh, articles that I read on Bloomberg, uh, his Macroman column was it's really important to also monitor the liability side of the Fed's balance sheet. For example, uh, you know, accounting 101, if the out, uh, asset side of your balance sheet is shrinking, you have to have an equal amount on your liability side. And so that's been a major influence this year on financial assets is what liability at the Fed is declining to match the decline in the Fed's assets. And effectively, one of the things that we have seen over the last year or so was a huge surge in reverse repos. And I won't get into why that is, but effectively, when money leaves the banking system and it goes into the Fed's reverse repo facility, that is effectively money being drained from the financial system. The reason for that is the Fed does nothing with that. It basically sits on that and then pays money centers and interest rate on those reserves. Another um, area in terms of that impacts the, um, the markets is the Treasury's general account at the Fed. It's basically the U.S. Treasury's checking account, uh, which it has at the Fed, and it is therefore an asset to the U.S. Treasury, but a liability to the Fed. So think of it this way. When that liability is growing, that means the U.S. Treasury is increasing the amount of um, assets and cash and deposits that it has at the Fed. It does so by issuing debt. So when the U.S. Treasury is issuing debt, it is market participants who are exchanging their cash and liquidity, providing that to the Treasury in exchange for assets, which are treasuries and T-bills and, and notes. So that's kind of like cash and money leaving the financial system and going to the U.S. Treasury. So as the U.S. Treasury's checking account at the Fed rises, 
That's similar to liquidity being withdrawn from the system. And conversely, when the uh, Treasury's general account at the Fed falls, that's essentially the Treasury issuing or spending money and pouring that back into the economy. So monitoring trends in the reverse repo facility, as well as the uh, Treasury's general account at, uh, at the Fed are very important. Now, when those fall, that those liabilities fall, that's actually a net benefit and injection of liquidity into the market. And so when those rise, that's a negative. Now, another liability that is on the Fed's balance sheet are the reserve balances at Federal Reserve banks. So basically, these are assets for Federal Reserve banks who then park it at the Fed, which is a liability to the Fed. And when we see the uh, banking reserves rise uh, under QE, that generally leads to higher stock prices. And when reserve balances fall, we tend to see a falling stock market. So it, it was really no surprise that the peak in reserve balances was coinciding with the peak in the stock market. So what we've had in, I think, part of the reason we had a rally since October, number one, we had bond yields fall, which is providing a lot of relief to the bond investors in the market. Second, we also have favorable seasonalities. But when you look at the liability side of the Fed's balance sheet, we had some favorable developments in, uh, since October. For example, we saw reverse repos decline. We also saw the Treasury's general account at the Fed decline, and those effectively were injecting liquidity into the markets as well as the economy. At the same time, we also saw reserve balances at Federal Reserve banks rise. So the liabilities, the right liabilities that you want at the Fed to rise and the ones you want to fall, they all moved in the correct direction that was supportive of the market. However, one of the things that I'm uh, looking at is when you look at the Treasury's general account at the Fed, it currently stands at $342 billion. Now, pre-pandemic, that is below the former highs that we used to see and almost about at the average balance that we saw from 2016 through 2020. So the point is the scope of the Treasury injecting liquidity into the market is, is quite low. And I think, in fact, we'll probably see the Treasury issue in excess of debt so that it can replenish its checking account that is getting low. So to me, I don't think you're going to see the Treasury's general account, the Fed, move in the right direction for the market. And further, when we look at reverse repos, that one's kind of a tough one to see if those shrink or fall. But uh, that's why we're going to be monitoring that closely, because if we see the Treasury's account, the Fed, either um, stay constant or rise, that's going to be negative for the market. And if we see reverse repos stay steady or rise, that also would be a negative uh, factor for the market because that would imply that reserve balances need to decline to match the decline on the Fed's asset side of its balance sheet. So, you know, I know this is a lot of accounting, but really, it's really, really important when you think of the Fed, again, do not just think of the Fed in terms of its assets, uh, how much treasuries and mortgages it owns, but also its liabilities, which pay a, a crucial role in market liquidity. So if we see all of those liabilities move in the wrong direction, this could have some very negative implications for the stock market ahead.
Well, Chris, you pointed out the reasons why it's obviously important to monitor trends, not just with the Fed's assets on their balance sheet, but also on their liability side. What other trends are you looking at as we close out today's show that you think are important for investors to keep in mind as we enter into 2023? Well, I, you know, I was discussing accounting 101 with the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, I would say Econ 101 is a basic law of supply and demand. When you have supply overwhelmed demand, prices fall. And I think that's going to be really important to look at when we discuss the sovereign bond market, not just for the U.S., but also globally. One of the things that happened during the pandemic coming out of it was that we had governments issue record amounts of debt. However, you had, which obviously increased supply, but you also had central banks largely sterilize that by increasing their demand for sovereign debt. So we really, when you look at net issuance, it really wasn't that large, which is why interest rates in 2020, 21 really stayed benign. They didn't take off as much as they have this year. Now, what started to happen late last year was the Fed began to taper its purchases, eventually stopped, and then started to shrink its balance sheet this year. So when we look at the U.S. Treasury's net issuance of the Fed's buying, we saw that really begin to take off starting in January of this year. And what did we see? We saw a sizable increase in U.S. interest rates. So we are still seeing that where the Treasury is issuing a tremendous amount of debt. The Fed is no longer buying Treasuries. Instead, it's seeing that shrink on its balance sheet every single month. Now, one of the other developments that was very important to, uh, this week was the European Central Bank discussing their plans next year to start shrinking their balance sheet. So we're talking when we enter 2023, the US Fed shrinking its balance sheet at the fastest pace uh, compared to other cycles. We also have the European Central Bank talking about shrinking its balance sheet. And Europe has a tremendous amount of debt coming due as well. So I think we're gonna see continued pressure on bonds despite weakening economies if central banks are not going to increase demand to match supply. Now, again, Econ 101, when supply overwhelms demand, prices fall. Well, it's the price of bonds that fall, which then means higher interest rates, as interest rates and bond prices move inversely to each other. So I do think there remains a risk, not just for the stock market next year, but also bond investors. And as we mentioned at the top of the show, our segment, uh, we are starting to see global sovereign bond yields move back up and the trends remain bullish. So I think you're going to see some tough um, markets ahead, uh, similar to this year, where bond investors suffer from rising interest rates, as does the stock market. So this is why, Chris, for our clients, uh, we have a fair amount of cash, not just from the bond side of our portfolios, but also equities, as we think there's some risk to potentially both sides of the portfolio. You know, given that, Chris, uh, Ryan said in the wrap up that we had taken a position in bonds. Where does that fit into the context of what we're doing here at Financial Sense Wealth Management and with clients? As we've raised cash, uh, you know, that goes to short term money market funds. Uh, we find that we can get better yields in buying uh, US T bills. So that's one of the things we've been doing is buying six month and 12 month T bills as we can get higher yields on our cash for our clients as we wait for the market to bottom before going back in. And we may, with some cash, even start to go a little bit further out, buying one-year and two-year treasuries 
if we get closer to the eventual pivot by the Fed, where the Fed is done raising interest rates and starts to cut. But near term, uh, you know, T-bills have a lot less volatility than long-term bonds. And so that's what we've kind of been parking our cash in, is putting some of that to work in short-term T-bills. And we may, when we feel that bond yields have finally peaked and confident in that, we may extend the outlook for our purchases of treasuries going out maybe one or two years. But we have been essentially putting some of that cash to work as we wait patiently for the market to bottom. Got it. Okay. So when it comes to the bearish view on the bond market heading into 2023 with yields possibly even heading higher, our positioning is mostly on the shorter term instruments versus on the long end. That's correct. Okay. Well, once again, we've been speaking with Chris Paplava, our Chief Investment Officer here at Financial Sense Wealth Management. Chris, keep up the great work. Always a pleasure to have you on the show, and we definitely look forward to speaking with you in another two weeks. Thanks very much, Chris, for having me on. I look forward to it. That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and click where it says Contact Us. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts, and strategists from around the globe, go to Financial Sense and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense NewsHour and the Financial Sense Wealth Management Team, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour be advised that you invest at your own risk